This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, if you're new, uh, we started a series on David and one of the major figures of the Old Testament. Um, and so we're kind of walking through the contours of David's life and drawing from some principles for our, our own lives from that. And today we're going to look at parts of chapters 21 through 24 of 1 Samuel. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to look at uh, four different scenes from David's life from 1 Samuel 21 through 24 today. This is from a period in David's life when he is fleeing for his life. He is literally on the run. He is being hunted by King Saul who is trying to, to take his, his life. So turn to 1 Samuel 21 and be, be ready. We're gonna be looking at parts of four different chapters today. Do you remember the details of bad dreams that you've had. Hopefully, hopefully you don't remember too many of the, of the details. I tend to, when I have a bad dream, I tend to kind of remember like maybe the major plot that was going on, not really the, the details of the nightmare, which I guess is always uh, best. But there's a, a dream that I've had a, a couple of times in my life. Um, and it's the nightmare of being chased. <laughs> and I don't really know like who it was that was chasing me or, or why I was on the, the run or anything, but it's, it's kind of like I know that in the, in the nightmare that I was, someone was out to get me. Someone was trying to take my life. But of course, you know, when we have a bad dream, there comes that moment of dawning recognition where we wake up and we're like, oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> It was only a dream. I'm right here in my bed. Nothing's wrong. It's okay. But this is a period in David's life when, when his nightmare was reality. He is literally being chased and hunted down by King Saul. And, and, and Saul is doing this with all of the power of the state behind him. You remember at this point in David's story, even though he's been anointed as the future king, he is not yet in power. Saul still has the reins of power. And he's using every bit of that power to, to hunt down David. But in the midst of this period in his life, which is really a dark period in his life, when he's on the run, God just comes to David in some beautiful ways. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four scenes that happen during David's time on the run and draw some principles for our own lives. So the first one that we see is in chapter 21 and verses 10 through 15. And we're going to call that one brought low to be lifted up. And if you're new and you want to... Um, not familiar with what we do. You can take notes if you want on the back of your, of your handout. The outline is, is, is there. But 
Let's look in chapter 21 here, beginning with verse 10. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. Now, wow, this tells us how bad things have gotten for David at this point in his life. Because that place, Gath, we've heard that place before. (laughs) In chapter 17, that was Goliath's hometown. And so things have gotten so bad for David that he's been forced to flee to Philistine territory to the hometown of the very guy that that he he killed in chapter 17. He's had to flee to Goliath's hometown. Their their hometown hero was, was killed by David, right? And so he's, things are so bad, he has to flee to this hostile territory, Philistine territory, to Gath of all places. It just shows you how bad things have become for David at this point in his life. And things get even worse because then he's apprehended and he's standing before King Achish, who is the king of Gath. Look at verse 11. But Achish's servant said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, when David hears this, he's just internally coming undone because this is ominous. David is like, they know who I am. He knows his life is in serious jeopardy at this point. And so he goes into survival mode. (laughs) And it just comes to him, you know, the only thing you can think of, maybe if I act like I'm mentally deranged, you know, they won't recognize, they won't know who I, I am. I'll think I'm just some crazy person. Verses 12 and 13. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So David's just like, to protect himself, to try to, he doesn't want them to know it's him, so he's just acting like he's mentally deranged. And he must have been pretty convincing, must have been, in addition to all of his other talents, must have been a pretty good actor, because look at what King Achish says, verses 14 and 15. Achish, King Achish, Achish, says, Achish says, look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? And so he lets David go. But but listen, this scene just shows us how low David has been brought. I mean, this is the anointed one. This is the future king on the run, his life threatened. I mean, he's, he's, he's reduced to pretending to be utterly in, insane in this situation. He's, he's brought low. So what can, we, what can we draw from that? What principles can we draw from that? First of all, God breaks us in preparation for greater things. Adrian Rogers is one of my heroes in in ministry, and 
Dr. Rogers passed away in, in 2006 of cancer, but his wife Joyce wrote a memoir of their life together and ministry and everything. And she begins, the, she begins her book by telling about the lowest day of their lives. It was, it was Mother's Day, and Adrian had preached that morning. They'd come home and had lunch and put the kids down. And she went to look in on their, their littlest one, a little baby, and he was there in his crib and lifeless. And it was SIDS. It was sudden infant death syndrome. And, and they were absolutely shattered. Just shattered. But Joyce Rogers writes that in, in the aftermath of that devastating experience, she said, Adrian and I cast ourselves on the Lord in a way we had never done before. Jesus became the greater focus of our lives and we began to realize more than ever his total sufficiency. And then she says this, men throw broken things away, but it seems that God never uses anything until he first breaks it. And you know, sometimes we have to be brought to a point of utter weakness in our own lives before we will understand God's power. The Apostle Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh. We, we don't know what it was. Maybe a, maybe a serious eye problem that he was dealing with. We, we don't really know. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9 about that thorn. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. And so, God weans us from our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency. And he teaches us something else during those times, those low times. God teaches us to truly rely on him. Someone has said that, you know, we don't really know that God is all we need until God is all we have. God is all David has in this, at this point in time in his life. And again, we can learn from the Apostle Paul here because he and his missionary colleagues went through a time when they were in Asia. And again, we don't know exactly what was going on, but it was really, really bad. And Paul says of that experience in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And many of you could give testimony this morning that there have been times in your life when you just felt like you were 
utterly at the end of your rope. But you could also give testimony today that that's exactly where God met you in the most powerful way. And you discovered that he was at the end of your rope. Brought low to be lifted up. That's what we see in chapter 21. In chapter 22, turn there, it's about finding a new family. Finding a new family. Let's look at chapter 22 and beginning with verse 1. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. So <laughs> talk about going underground. <laughs> David's literally underground <laughs> at this point. He's having to live in a, in a cave. And his brothers and his father's whole family have come there. That's interesting because they had kind of, you know, they kind of blew him off earlier. Their lives are probably threatened at this point too because David's being hunted down. Probably his family's being threatened too. So they go to be with him in the cave, but then others come. An unlikely new family comes. Verse 2, in addition... Every man who was desperate in debt or discontented rallied around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. There's an old film from the 1960s called The Dirty Dozen. <laughs> it's about, it's a World War II film about uh, these, these misfits, these, these prisoners uh, who who volunteer for this, this ultra-high-risk uh, assignment to commandos, you know, to go, go behind Nazi lines and do all kinds of high-risk operations in preparation for the, the D-Day landings, the, the, a group of misfits, you know, the dirty dozen. Well, this is, this is more than a dozen, right? We'll call it the frightening 400 gather. To, to David. And listen, these guys are ragged edge guys. I mean, they're, they're outsiders. You know, they don't fit in with the mainstream of society. You know, they're a bunch of, you know, ragged edge misfits. But they, but they, they, they gather to David and they become like brothers to David. And they become partners and the purposes of God. Now remember who David's life points to. Matthew tells us in the very first verse of the New Testament. He says it's an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. Okay, so there are things about David's life that foreshadow the ministry of Christ. So when you read the four Gospels, who is it that gravitates to Jesus? Not the right people. <laughs> not the religious people. Not the elites. Not the insiders, no. Who is it that's gravitating to the ministry of Christ? In the four gospels, it's the outsiders, right? 
It's the misfits. It's people nobody else liked. It's those who were looked down upon. It was people like Gentiles and Roman soldiers and Samaritans and women and prostitutes, you know, the sexually broken, the physically broken. It was despised people like tax collectors, like Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 9. Turn to Matthew 9. And let's look at a little bit of Matthew's story. Let's look at the day that Matthew met Jesus. He tells us about it in his gospel. Matthew 9, and let's pick it up there, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, these tax collectors were so despised because they, were t they tended to be con artists. They would rip people off. They worked for the Roman government, and Matthew's a Jew working for the Roman government, which made him even more despised. Everybody hated him. But Jesus takes an interest in Matthew. Jesus is talking about forgiveness and new life and, and God is working in Matthew's life. And there came a day when Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then Matthew did something really wild. Matthew threw a party that only Matthew could throw. <laughs> Because who are Matthew's friends? It's, it's people like him, people on the outside. His friend, and so Matthew has a party and he invites his motley crew friends to be there. And he does something else. He invites Jesus and the disciples to be there. What happened? Verse 10. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they were the religious types, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now that is what the church is. That's a picture of the church. That's a picture of the family of God. The family of God, the church, is not a bunch of people who have everything together. It's a bunch of people who have come to realize that we don't have it together. And we have fled into the arms of the only one who does have it together. The only one who lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life that we could never live. And who died the death that we should have died in our place. We have fled to him. We have fallen into his arms. We have run into his arms as we sung earlier. Because we know that we need a savior. That's a picture of the church. That's the family of God. And when God brings us into his family, you know what else he does? He sends us out on mission 
to reach others and to bring others into that family. I love what Tony Evans says. The Pharisees offered plenty of religious sacrifices, but their hearts weren't merciful. Similarly, if your praise and worship isn't making you more compassionate toward the lost, you've missed the point of church. Let's fast forward to chapter 23. And here we see a third, a third scene from David's life on the run. The encouragement of godly friends. Last week, we looked at the friendship between David and Jonathan. And we see that again in chapter 23 in verses 15 and following. Let's look there. David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I will be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true that the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Now notice here that Jonathan does not just give David a pep talk. You know, he doesn't just say, hey, keep your chin up. No, Jonathan turns David's eyes toward God. He helps him see God in the situation that he's in. Look at verse 16. It says, Jonathan came to David and did what? Encouraged him in his faith in God. Strengthened his hand in God. Strengthened him in God. He points him to God. And he did that by pointing David to God's covenant promises. Look at verse 17. He says, don't be afraid for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king. Where is he getting that from? That's a promise of God. He's pointing David to God's promises. And this is what godly friends do for us. They point us to God. They point us to his promises. Now where do we find friends like that? We find friends like that in the family of God, in the church. Which is why a Christian without a local church is a Christian in trouble. You know, we hear these stories these days about prominent Christians deconstructing in their faith. And I've had really heartbreaking conversations with with friends, you know, over the past few months and, you know, stories of kids and stuff, you know, uh, leaving the, the, the faith and all of that. But the common denominator in almost every situation like that is that people drift from the local church. They drift in their faith because they're drifting from the encouragement and the support that they find in the body of Christ. Which is why encouragement should be such a priority in the local church. First Thessalonians 5, 11, Therefore, encourage one another 
and build each other up as you are already doing. This is written to a church. The church is to be a community of encouragement, mutual encouragement. Ephesians 4, 29 and, and 30, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The church is to be a place of encouragement where we, 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 we use our words to give grace to those who hear and, 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 and where we're Jonathans to one another, right? Strengthening one another's faith in God, the encouragement of godly friends. Fourth, let God be God. We see this in chapter 24. Let God be God. Let's look at chapter 24 and verses one and two. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Now, I've been to En Gedi in Israel, some of you have, and let me tell you, the wild goats are still there. (laughs) They're there, you can see them come out, they'll lock horns with one another. En Gedi is a very rocky place, it's a place with a lot of caves, it's near Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave. And so, on this day, David and his guys are in one of these caves, and who comes to take a bathroom break in the privacy of the cave but Saul himself? Verses 3 and 4. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. So David's guys are like, this is, this is a sign from God. <laughs> you know, I mean, we will never see this guy in a more vulnerable position than he's in right now. David, he has literally put him right in your hands. This is a sign from God. You should kill this guy right now on the spot. But David doesn't see it as a sign from God. David sees it as a test from God. Because the test was this. God, in putting Saul in that position, God is really saying to David, okay, David, how much do you trust me? Are you gonna try to take matters into your own hands here? Or are you gonna trust me to give you the throne when I wanna give you the throne? Look at the latter part here of uh, of verse verse four. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's 
robe. He doesn't physically harm him in any, in any way, just cuts off the corner of his robe. But then he's conscience-stricken because he did that. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Why? Because of the symbolic nature of the king's robe. Old Testament scholar Robert Bergen says this, this act was far from meaningless because David's confiscation of a portion of the royal robe signified the transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. Now, was that David's role to make that transfer? No. No. That was God's business. And David, David's conscience is stricken because he immediately understands, I'm getting out of my lane. You know, it's, it, this, is God's, this is God's role to give me the throne when he desires. Can't take this into my own hands. And so he's conscience-stricken, even that he cut a portion of his robe off. He's convicted about it. Pick it up in, here in verse, verse 6. He said to his men, As the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. You know, rather than falling upon Saul in a murderous rage, David falls before him in honor sign of loyalty why does he do that Saul's trying to kill him it wasn't so much about Saul it was about the God who put Saul in his position David is showing honor ultimately to the Lord because the Lord put Saul in that position and it's going to be the Lord that's going to take him out of that position. But David understands, that's not my role. I'm going to let God be God. And then in verses 9 through 15, we see these incredibly powerful words from David. Look at it. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you. But I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father. Look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you were hunting me to down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for, for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. 
Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. Notice how God-centered David's perspective is here. You know, again and again here, he says, you know, may the Lord, may the Lord judge. May the Lord do this. I'm not going to do it. My hand will never be against you. All right, this has got this, I'm going to let God be God. And you, and you see here that he just, he, he utterly refuses to get ahead of the Lord and take matters into his own hands. Listen, when we refuse to wait on God, we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. When we, try, when we get out of our lane and we don't let God be God in our lives, we can make some terrible decisions. Terrible decisions. Listen, you can trust the Lord to open the right doors at the right times, and he will do it. Let God be God. The chapter ends with these incredibly emotional words from Saul himself. Beginning in verse 16, when David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, even though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. <clears throat> wow, you know, we saw last week, Saul is such a tortured guy. He's, he's tortured because he's divided. His soul is divided. He's coming apart because he refuses to trust the Lord. But what he says here is right. And, and what he says here in verse 20 really just kind of tees up the rest of our, the rest of the series says in verse 20, Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. That's what we're going to look at from here on out, is David's kingship. David will be king, but listen to me, we need a greater king than David. We need the king that David's life points to. What does the angel Gabriel say to Mary? When he, when he tells Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus, Luke 1, and verses 32 and 33, the angel says to Mary of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Listen, we need a greater king than David. We need the one whose kingdom will have no end. And that's the son of David. That's Jesus. Remember David's life. It gives us foreshadowings, right, of, of Christ. Like David, in chapters 21 through 24, Jesus was hunted by people who wanted to kill him. Jesus was falsely accused. But Jesus, Jesus allowed himself to be taken and put on a cross for us. Because unlike David, Jesus had no sin. And so he could die vicariously for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And unlike David, Jesus rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life. And he is ascended and exalted and returning again as king of kings and lord of lords. Do you know this king? Do you love this king? Have you, have you bowed your heart, your knee, and given allegiance to this king? Let's pray together. Is Christ the Savior and Lord and King of your life? One day, each of us will stand before him. Are you ready? We, we don't know when that's going to be. Christ could come any day. Our lives could end any day. We're going to stand before the King. Do you know this King as your Savior and Lord? Turn to him. Trust him. Turn from trying to do life your way apart from him. Turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I receive you. I welcome you into my life. I bow before you as my Savior and Lord and King. I know you died for sinners like me, that you, you rose from the dead. You're coming again. I want you to be the Savior and Lord and King of my life. Would you do that today? Christian, are there areas of your life where Christ is not on the throne? Where, where you've tried to usurp his position, his rightful position as king, and you've tried to reign in that area of your life yourself. It's time to lay that down, repent, turn from that. Jesus is to be Lord in every area of our lives. What are you going to do with Christ today? If you're giving your life to him, Jesus tells us to confess that publicly. 
In just a moment, we're going to stand and, and sing. We want to invite you. If you're giving your life to Christ, Jesus says, let that be known. He says, if you acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. We're to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. If we can't confess Christ publicly in a church where people are going to support us for following Jesus, how in the world can we stand for Christ out there in the world when we're not going to be cheered on for doing it? As God is moving in your life, in just a moment as we stand, we want to invite you to come. I'm going to be here at the front. Come and share with me what God is doing in your life. You're giving your life to Christ. It could be that you're here and you, you, you know Christ. You need to be baptized as a believer and follow through on the Lord's command to be baptized as, as his follower. Come and let us know that. We'll set up a time a Sunday for that to happen in your life so we can celebrate that. Maybe you're here as a believer and you just want to come pray at the altar. You just need to pray with someone. We're here for you, to, for you to do that. If you're here today and you say, we need to make this our church family. We talked about it a few moments ago. We, we cannot do this alone. When we get when we get away from the fellowship and the encouragement of a local church, that is a problem. And so maybe you're here today and you would say, we, we, we want to be a part of the family of God. We want to be a part of, this, of the, this family of brothers and sisters here. And so we want to invite you to come. So Father, we give you this time now of invitation. We pray that you would work in hearts and lives today. Lord, draw us to yourself. Help us to flee to you. Flee into your arms and lean upon you and lean into I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.